0: Uh, we're going to look at um, one of the most paradoxical figures in the Bible, uh, Pontius Pilate, and this is the third of the kind of vignettes we've done. We've we've looked at we looked at Judas Iscariot, and we've looked at Simon Peter, and today I want to I want to look at Pontius Pilate. So we're going to be in John chapter 18 and uh, verse 28. Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's taken to the house of Caiaphas, uh, the high priest. And then he is sent to uh, the governor's palace, um, the the governor's headquarters. Different translations translate it differently. John chapter 18 and verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. And it was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and he said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And the Jews said to them, It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again, and he called Jesus, and he said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. And Pilate said to him, So you're a king? And Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? And after he had said this, he went back outside of the Jews and he told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want, to re- want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. So Pilate took Jesus and he flogged him and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on his head and they arrayed him in a purple robe and they came up to him saying, hail king of the Jews and they struck him with their hands. And Pilate went out again and said to them, see, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe and Pilate said to them, behold the man. And when the chief priests and the officers saw them, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again, and he said to Jesus, where are you from? Jesus gave him no answer. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out. He sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. And now it was the day of the preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. There is perhaps no character in the Bible um, with a more varied response among those who call themselves Christian than Pontius Pilate. You know that in some of the churches in the East, the Coptic church and some of the other churches, he's actually a saint, which is weird to us. If you go to a, a, pay, a, a, pa, a passion play, um, often he's the big bad guy. He's the, the big bad guy. Or he is the guy who just doesn't want to be involved. You get passages of the other gospels where he washes his hands. He says, I'm not going to have any guilt over this guy. Um, I want to tell you a little bit about Pontius Pilate. Uh, from what we know about him. We actually know quite a bit about him. Um, we know more about him than any Roman official in Palestine at the time. Um, There's several writers that talk about him. Uh, The first is uh, a guy named um, uh, 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 Philo of Alexandria. He's a Jewish aristocrat from the city of Alexandria in Egypt. He talks quite a bit about um, Pilate. Um, And given that Philo's family was very deeply integrated with both the uh, imperial family, the family of the Caesars, and with the Herod family, the the rulers of Palestine at different times, um, he he seemed to he may have even known the guy. Uh, So he talks about him, and and Philo writes at about 40 A.D., so it's pretty close to the time period of Jesus. Jesus would have been crucified around 30 A.D. Then there's a, a Jewish trader named Flavius Josephus, uh, writing around 90 AD, um, and he uh, talks quite a bit about Pilate. He spends a lot of time on Pontius Pilate. But he's also mentioned by, um, by the Roman historian, the Roman tactician Tacitus, who wrote a, a, a story, uh, wrote a, a number of books, about 80 volumes, 80 books on Roman uh, military history. Uh, actions. I want to I give you kind of the background. So this might get a little confusing because there's a lot of Romans in it and they have weird names. Let's see, what, what happened was um, when Caesar Augustus died in 14 AD, he was succeeded by a guy by the name of Tiberius. Now Tiberius was actually his nephew. Um, and Tiberius was already in his 50s. He was not a young man. Uh, And he succeeded to the throne, to the power of the emperor. And he was assisted a great deal by um, his praetorian prefect, a guy named Sejanus. Uh, Sejanus was a real piece of work. Now, later on, Tiberius would find all this out, but he didn't know. As far as he knew, Sejanus was a faithful servant working with him. Um, but Tiberius, uh, Tiberius had a, uh, a, 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 a chosen successor. Um, his name was Germanicus. What a great name, Germanicus. That just sounds so... Uh, all right. Germanicus was married to a woman named Agrippina the Elder, and she had, between Germanicus and her previous uh, husband, she had six children. Uh, and Germanicus was, uh, you can guess where Germanicus was successful as a general, I'm going to assume. Um, he was successful in, in Germany. Um, he avenges the, the Battle of Tutenberg Forest. There's a bunch of stuff that goes on. But in, but in AD 19, um Tiberius took Germanicus, who was his successor, the one that he wanted to be um, Caesar after him, and he made him the governor of Syria, uh, the, the imperial, the proconsular legate. I'm sure you're very excited about that. Um, and he gave him uh, imperial power. What that meant was that Germanicus had absolute authority over the entire Middle East. To execute wars, to execute criminals, to overthrow governors, all of these things. He had absolute power. Um, he arrives in Antioch and dies under mysterious causes. He, he just gets sick one day at dinner and dies. His wife, Agrippina, and her six children, who have literally spent their entire lives running away from German barbarians. So what a life to grow up in. They are terrified for their lives. They run to Egypt. And there's a guy named Alexander the Albanarch, who's Philo Philo of Alexander's brother. Um, He puts them, smuggles them onto a ship, and sends them back to Rome so they can be safe. Well, then... uh, Two of her sons, first one named, uh, another one named Tiberius, dies at a meal suddenly. People should start getting suspicious about this. Um, And then another one uh, is accused of being treacherous and he's executed. Well, 26 AD comes along and Tiberius, Tiberius is old, tired, and cranky. And so he does what old, tired, cranky people do. All apologies to you. He moves to Fort Lauderdale. <laughs> he, he literally builds a palace on Capri, the island of Capri. And he leaves the administration of the Roman government to Sejanus. And he goes off and he lives in his island palace and does whatever he wants. He's off golfing or whatever he's doing. I don't know what he's doing. Um, but he's off partying and stuff. And he's, in his, he's getting close to his 70s. Secretly, Sejanus is engineering that he should be the successor of Tiberius. Now he's a commoner. He can't technically be adopted into the family. He begins to manipulate and control. But he also has a very, very long memory. And he remembers that the Jews managed to smuggle Agrippina out before he could deal with all of her kids. And so, as near as we can tell, Sejanus, who is running Rome, begins to send men out to be the governors of different outlying provinces where the Jews are a majority. In Alexandria, there are over one million Jews living in Alexandria, all right, in in the Alexandria and its outlying territories. In Israel, there's probably between five and seven million Jews living in Israel, There are Jews living in Asia Minor, there's a population of nearly a million Jews living in Asia Minor. There's a huge population of Jews in Rome. They have an entire section of Rome dedicated to the Jews. It's this Jewish quarter. And if you're in the Jewish quarter, you don't have to make sacrifices to the, the emperor. You don't have to, you don't have to do your, throw your incense on the altars as you walk by all the temples. They have all these exemptions. They're special. And Sejanus knows that they are a powerful block. And he decides the best way to deal with them It's to send these governors out into these areas with a simple mandate. Get the Jews to rebel. Because if they rebel, if they rise up against Caesar, then we can bring the legions down on him and we can destroy them. Now, remember that Germanicus was the governor. He was the proconsular legate of Syria. Tiberius was so terrified that another one of his favorites might die that he decided that the best way to govern Syria was to keep the governors in Rome. I don't know about you, but I've always respected the fact that the governor of New Hampshire lives in San Francisco. (laughs) Right? So there is no governor in Syria, the big province, and he sends this guy Pontius Pilate to be the governor of Judea, to be the procurator. The military military, uh, uh, governor, prefect. According to the ancient sources, Pontius Pilate three times tries to provoke the Jews into rebellion. The first time, he moves his troops from Caesarea Maritima uh, on the coast, the Mediterranean coast. He moves them to Jerusalem and he tells them to bring their shields. Now, these aren't the shields that they carry. They're shields that you put outside the barracks of your your troops. And on the shields are pictures of Roman gods. And the Roman fortress in Jerusalem is attached to the temple. You actually enter it through the temple platform. And he tells them to hang the shields with the names and depictions of Roman gods on them on the wall facing the temple. So every Jew that comes into the temple grounds sees the names of pagan gods. This was a terrible idea. Unless you're trying to provoke a rebellion. Now the Jews are trying to handle this very peacefully. They like being... The, the Jews in Jerusalem like having Roman power there. They like the projection of power that it creates, the peace that it creates. So they assemble and they, they say, you know, you've got to take these down. And Pilate says, well, I'm not going to take them down. What are you going to do about it? He's thinking he's going to provoke them. Instead, the Jews send a letter to Rome and the Senate says, sends a letter back and says, take the shields down. So Pontius Pilate takes them down. Then Pontius Pilate decides, well, my troops need water. And so he builds an aqueduct from the mountains down to Jericho to put water in the the Roman barracks. But he didn't have any money for it, he thought, so he robbed the Jewish temple treasury and used treasury money on the grounds that we're here to secure you and therefore you should pay for it. It's kind of like have them build the wall kind of a situation. The Jews again assemble in the temple platform, and they call for Pontius Pilate. Same thing that's happened in John 18. They stand outside, and they say, come out to us. And he comes out to them, he says, what do you want? And they say, hey, not cool, man. Well, Pontius Pilate knew they were going to do that, and he had his Roman soldiers take off all of their garb and dress like Jews, with clubs and sticks and bats under their robes. And as the Jews are assembled, saying, hey this isn't right these soldiers begin to beat the Jewish protesters hoping to provoke a riot thankfully the leaders of the Jews are too smart for Pontius Pilate and they take the beating several of them are killed they leave the temple platform no issue I can do better, Pontius Pilate says. So in AD 35, a sort of messianic figure, not Jesus. So we're talking this is a little bit after Jesus. I'm just giving his whole summary. Um, there's a guy who people think is Moses uh, for some reason. I don't know why. Um, and they, he tells a group of Samaritans that on Mount Gerizim, there's a hidden treasure. And if we could get that hidden treasure... We, we could raise an army and we could fight the Romans and we could have our independence. So there's a whole crowd of people going to Mount Gerizim and they're going to dig this up. And Pontius Pilate handles this as any diplomat would. He has his cavalry trample them to death. What a great guy. In AD 36, a guy named Lucius Vitellius is sent um, to to Syria um, to be the governor. And when he arrives, he goes to Antioch. When he arrives at Antioch, there is a crowd of Samaritans and Jews gathered at his palace. Now, if you know anything about the Samaritans and Jews, they don't get along. They have one reason and one reason alone. Get rid of Pontius Pilate. He's trying to provoke us. And what's interesting is later, a, a guy by the name of Fakus will actually provoke a riot in uh, Alexandria, which will lead to a whole mess of things. Um, a bunch of, uh, bunch of problems in AD 38. They call it the summer of 40, the Alexandrian pogrom. So this is the guy that the high priest Caiaphas decides should decide Jesus' fate. I mean, can you... Can you imagine? By the way, Caiaphas get, or, uh, uh, Pilate gets sent back to Rome. Vitellius sends him back to Rome, and he disappears from history. Because as he's on his way to Rome, the emperor Tiberius dies. Sejanus had actually been caught in what he was doing. He was executed. Um, Pilate disappears. We don't know what happened to him. We assume, given that he worked for the Italians. Um But the reality is, this is the guy that they want to try Jesus. Why do they bring Jesus to Pilate? They have one reason and one reason alone. They want him crucified. They don't want to kill him. They want the Romans to kill him. That's, Romans are the only ones allowed to crucify him. But look at how this is handled. I want you to see Pilate's questions. And maybe we read through these and you had in your mind a particular version of what Pilate was thinking when he asks these questions. Now that you know what a genuine gentleman that he was, I want you to reread these questions. In chapter 18, he says they bring him to him. And in verse 29, Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? Why does he ask that question? Well, obviously he needs to decide what he's going to do, right? But he's been dealing with false messiahs for nearly a decade. He's been dealing with problems. And if the Jews are coming to him, he knows there's an advantage to be gained. If he can figure out what's going on. What's the accusation? What's funny is, what do they accuse him of? Nothing. They say, well, if he wasn't guilty, we wouldn't have brought him here. And Pilate goes, okay, all right, I need to explore this a little more. He brings Jesus in, and what's the first question he asks Jesus? What does he say? Are you the king of the Jews? Now, this is a very, very interesting question. I'll tell you why. Herod the Great was given the title in, in, uh, in uh, 4041 40, um, BC. Herod the Great was given the title King of the Jews by the Roman Senate. He was an ally of Mark Antony and, uh, and Octavius. Herod the Great's descendants were not given that title. They were not allowed to call themselves king of the Jews, but his grandson, a guy named Herod Agrippa, Agrippa I, there are two, Herod Agrippa, who was friends with all the people I talked about in Alexandria and supported by the Jews, Herod Agrippa at this moment is in Rome trying to convince the Senate to have him declared king of the Jews. Right at this moment. It is well known that Herod Agrippa wants to be king of the Jews. He wants the Romans out of Judea. He wants it to be a Jewish state again. So when he asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? I should mention, by the way, Herod Agrippa has this tendency to sneak into cities clandestinely and not tell people that he's there. So it's possible, it's actually very possible That that Pilate may start this question because he's concerned he may actually have Herod Agrippa in front of him. But he asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Why does he want to ask that question? Because that plays into his thing perfectly. And the Jews are very aware of this. They are aware that anyone who claims to be a king cannot be a friend of Caesar. That figure of speech, by the way, is very, very common in this time period. Are you a friend of Caesar? Because to be a friend of Caesar is to call Caesar your lord, your master, your king. And so he asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Now Jesus could have diffused the whole situation very easily. By just saying, no. You say, well, that would be a lie. Would it? Is he only king of the Jews? And yet Jesus doesn't say anything, right? Look what he says. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, do you say this of your own accord or did somebody say this to you? Have the Jews accused me of being the king of the Jews? Have they accused me of sedition against Caesar? Is that that what this is about? Now, Jesus knows what's going on. He's completely aware of this. But he's, he's prompting Pilate this question. He says, where's this question coming from? And Pilate's answer is disdainful. Remember why he's here. Am I a Jew? What do I care about you guys? I I don't care about your rules. I don't care about your laws. Your nation and your chief priests have delivered you over to me. So what have you done? What did you do that provoked them and how can I work it to my advantage? That's really what he's asking. How can I make this work for me? Tell me what you've done because somehow I bet I can use that to provoke a riot. I can get a problem. And what does Jesus say? My kingdom is not of this world. These two guys never answer each other correctly, by the way. They never actually answer the question. They're having a conversation past each other. It's really an interesting dialogue. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. Now, what does he mean by this world? This is important, what he means. He's saying this is not a kingdom that is a threat to the Roman Empire. What I'm doing is not something that's a threat to you. I'm not here to bring you down. I'm not here to mess the fact. In fact, to be honest, I'm here to bring you in. I'm here, I'm here for the Gentiles to be brought into the covenant of God. Now, he doesn't say any of that. We learn that all later. But he's, he's saying, my kingdom's not of this world. He says, if it was, we'd be fighting you. And instead, I'm standing here with my hands tied. I'm not a threat to you. All right, that's not going to work. So are you a king? Verse, 27, verse 37. You say I'm a king. You keep insisting I'm a king, right? Maybe you're the one with the problem. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Now, this is a fascinating statement to be said to a Roman magistrate. Because the Romans believed that they alone were the arbiters of truth and peace in the world. They alone had the right form of government. Lex Rex, the law is king. They alone had true democratic representation. Don't tell them that they didn't, but... Just, just go with it. The Romans, the Romans believed that they were the true world order. They were the best thing going. They, were, they had to bring everybody into their sphere of influence and power. And Jesus says, I'm here to bear witness of the truth. That's the ground of Pilate saying, what is truth? He's like, you, I can't do anything with you. That's really what he's saying. You're useless to me. He takes him back out. He says, I, I got no reason to deal with this guy. You, you go deal with it. Because, now listen to what he's doing. He says, if you kill him, guess what Pilate can do? They're not allowed to kill people. They're not allowed to crucify somebody. They're not even technically allowed to stone people. They're not allowed to do capital punishment under the Roman law. So, if he hands them back to them, and they kill Jesus, guess what Pilate gets to do? He gets to crush the Jews. The Jews are too smart for him. They say, he says, I find no guilt. He says, so I should release somebody to you. Now, look at the way the question is asked. Do you want me to release you, the king of the Jews? He is pushing, although he doesn't know it, he is pushing these Jewish leaders to demonstrate where their real loyalty lies. Now, their real loyalty lies with themselves. They would rather deal with a false messiah, Barabbas. The son, that, name, that means, means father, uh, son of the father in Aramaic. So he's probably a, a TV preacher, stealer, robber, cult leader. And then what Pilate does to them, because they don't want the king of the Jews, he gives Jesus an imperial triumph in mockery. When a Roman general was victorious and came home to Rome, they would put the victor's diadem, the, you know, the olive branch that everybody sees on, somebody, on the Romans' heads, and they would drape him in purple, which was the color of imperium, and he would, they would actually paint his face purple, which is interesting, Um, and he would ride around in a chariot and the whole people would cheer for him as he rode by, oh, the great conqueror, oh, the great victor, oh, he did such wonderful things. So So Pilate decides the best thing that he can do to provoke a riot is to take this guy that they claim is the king of the Jews, dress him up like an emperor, brutalize them, and then put him in front of them and say, this is what I think of you. I'm telling you, this guy is a piece of work. He brings him out and he says, Behold the man. When an emperor, when a a great conquering general did his imperial ride through Rome, his triumph, he would go to the the temple of Jupiter Maximus, Jupiter Capitolinus. He would climb the steps And he would stand in front of the statue of Jupiter. And the people would say, Behold the man. The conqueror. The victor. He is baiting the Jews. He is trying to get them. He is is giving them an anti-king, an anti-emperor. He is setting up everything he has. He's trying to provoke them. The problem is Jesus won't play along. He brings Jesus out, they scream for him to be crucified. They want him. Now, what's great is he's turning this on, he says, Do it again, you do it. They say we can't do it, and there's a law, and he ought to die. Now they're saying because he made himself the son of God. Guess what the sitting emperor was? Son of God. He's he's there there's this dialogue going on. Pilate hears the statement. Now he's even more afraid. Who is he afraid of? It's an interesting question. I'll let you think about that one. He enters his headquarters. He says to Jesus, okay, where did you come from? You are not playing right. You're doing this wrong. I'm trying to get this all done. He says, and Jesus says to him, Jesus doesn't give an answer. Pilate says, uh, you, don't have, you don't have the authority. He says, don't you know I have the authority to release you? Now, be careful what you're reading. In chapter 19 of verse 11, Jesus says, you have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Now, most commentaries will say that he's saying that God um, gave Pontius Pilate the authority. I actually don't think that's true. Pontius Pilate doesn't have a boss. The governor of Syria, who is actually his direct boss, is in Rome. He doesn't have anybody to report to. And Jesus says, go ahead and kill me. You don't have the power that you claim you have. And that is why Pilate then turns and says, now we've got to get rid of him. He says, I got to get this guy out of here. He's going to release him. In verse 12, the Jews cry out, if you release them, you're not Caesar's friend. They play the last card. Now, he's trying to get the Jews to riot so that Rome can crush them. What's amazing is Jesus has worked this so that the Jews are the one loyal to Caesar and not Pilate. I mean, this thing has all been turned around. And if I'm Pontius Pilate, I'm going, this is a bad idea. I should have never gotten involved in this. And that's exactly what he's doing. He's trying to extract himself. This is not going to play out well. He finally, he hears these words, he brings Jesus, he sits on his judgment seat, and he says, okay. Um, he says, behold your king. And they cry, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Shall I, the last question he asks, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivers him over to be crucified. All right, terrible, horrible, tragic situation. But I want to hit you with the big idea. Jesus, in the midst of this, through his behavior, through his approach, through who he is, manages to use the most diabolical agendas of both Pilate and the Jews to work the salvation of both the Jews and the Romans. This is the interesting paradox of this whole bit about Jesus' trial. All Jesus had to do at any particular moment was start running down a litany of everything that he had actually done. All he had to do was say, I'm innocent. I didn't do anything. I don't know what you're talking about. I want a trial. I want a real trial. The Roman governor was actually obligated to take care of that. Jesus, Jesus is working through this whole system, the very brokenness, the, the, the politics, the games, the accusations, the, the competing agendas, the anti-Semitism of Sejanus and Pontius Pilate, the greed and consumption of the, of the high priests, all of this, all of this, never once is Jesus out of control. Never once is it a situation that surprises him. Never once. He is marching toward the thing he is going to do to save all of these people. Anyone who is willing to come to him will have forgiveness through him after the cross. And, and then we can look at it from a literary point of view and we can say the amazing thing about it is Pilate is actually winds up, the Jews wind up being, accusing themselves and backing themselves in a quarter and declaring their loyalty to Caesar, Pilate winds up actually confessing the truth about Jesus, that he is the king. Everybody gets flipped upside down. Everybody's backwards and sideways and turned up and the Jews are nuts and Pilate's nuts and in the center is Jesus. Their mockery becomes his glory. Their their derision becomes an instrument in his hand to work salvation. We look at the agendas of this world and we see them as so insurmountable and so unstoppable. And we freak out and we get out of control and we, we descend to chaos. And the reality is, none of this surprises God. Judas's betrayal did not surprise Jesus. Simon Peter's denial did not surprise Jesus. Pilate's corruption did not surprise Jesus. The Jews' sinfulness did not surprise Jesus. The sinfulness of our world does not surprise Jesus. What did Jesus say we had to do in order to be his disciples? He says it over and t- over time in the Gospels take up your cross and follow me. But Jesus, that can't possibly be the best way to do this. There's got to be a better way. The world is really, really, really bad. I mean, I don't care where you live, I guarantee there's no governor in the United States doing what Pontius Pilate was doing. I haven't read of any cavalry stampedes riding down protesters recently. We look at the world and we go, this is out of Jesus' control. This is this is so wild, there's no way God could do anything in this situation. And we're wrong. We're wrong. Jesus can turn the vilest nature of man to his glory. And we are called to be his church. We're not called to be scared of the world. In some senses, we're called to make the world scared of itself when they see who Christ is. I'll leave you with that. You say, that was a weird sermon. Thank you. Let's have a word of prayer. (laughs) Jesus, you know the questions I ask about all of this. Wouldn't it just be easier to just go straight to the cross. Why the trial? Why the punishment? Why the brutality? In some sense, it reveals to us the darkness of our own human hearts. In other sense, it demonstrates to, to me at least your absolute sovereignty and compassion. That you take our darkest, worst sides of our nature and turn them to your glory we live in a world that doesn't surprise you, where all the values of truth are inverted and sideways. When people would rather believe a convenient and illogical lie than than have faith in a simple truth. And it is so overwhelming. It is so dark. Sometimes it is so hard to be your church. Help us to take up our cross and follow him. Jesus, help us to follow you. In the face of Pontius Pilate, in the face of the Roman legions, in the face of the accusations of the religious and the haughty and the powerful, help us to believe that you truly are the Christ, the sovereign, our Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen. My brothers and sisters, go in peace and be the church of Jesus Christ.